0: Zygo shut off his wing rotors. Silence flooded in upon them. Jessica turned her head. She could see out the window beyond Scarface, a dim glow of light from a rising moon, a frosted rim of rock rising from the desert. Sandblast ridges streaked its sides. Paul cleared his throat. Now, kinet? I don't know, Zygo. Zygo turned. Ah, look. He reached out for Jessica's skirt Remove her gag Jessica felt the words rolling in the air The tone, the timbre excellent, imperative, very sharp A slightly lower pitch would have been better But it could still fall within this man's spectrum Zygo shifted his hand up to the band around Jessica's mouth Slipped the knot on the gag
1: Stop that Uh, Shut your trap, her hands are tied he
0: freed the knot and the binding dropped. His eyes glittered as he studied Jessica. Kinet put a hand on the pilot's arm. Look, Zygo, no need to... Jessica twisted her neck, spat out the gag. She pitched her voice in low, intimate tones.
1: Gentlemen, no need to fight over me.
0: At the same time, she writhed sinuously for Kinet's benefit. She saw them grow tense, knowing that in this instant they were convinced of the need to fight over her. Their disagreement required no other reason. In their minds, they were fighting over her. She held her face high in the instrument glow to be sure Kinette would read her lips.
1: You mustn't disagree.
0: They drew farther apart, glanced warily at each other.
1: Is any woman worth fighting over?
0: By uttering the words, By being there, she made herself infinitely worth their fighting. Paul clamped his lips tightly closed, forced himself to be silent. There had been the one chance for him to succeed with the voice. Now everything depended on his mother, whose experience went so far beyond his own. Yeah, no need to... His hand flashed toward the pilot's neck. The blow was met by a splash of metal that caught the arm and in the same motion slammed into Kinnett's chest. Scarface groaned, sagged backward against his door
1: Thought I was some dummy, didn't know that trick
0: He brought back his hand, revealing the knife It glittered in reflected moonlight
1: Now for the cub
0: He leaned toward Paul
1: No need for that
0: Zygo hesitated
1: Wouldn't you rather have me cooperative? Give the boy a chance Little enough chance he'd have out there in that sand. Give him that and you could find yourself well rewarded.
0: Zygo glanced left, right, returned his attention to Jessica.
1: I've heard me what can happen to a man in this desert. Boy might find the knife of kindness. Is it so much I ask? You're trying to trick me. I don't want to see my son die. Is that a trick?
0: Zygo moved back, elbowed the door latch. He grabbed Paul, dragged him across the seat, pushed him half out the door, and held the knife, poised.
1: What'll you do, cub, if I cut your bonds? He'll leave here immediately and head for those rocks.
0: Is that what you'll do, cub? Yes. Paul's voice was properly surly. The knife moved down, slashed the bindings of his legs. Paul felt the hand on his back to hurl him down onto the sand, feigned a lurch against the door frame for purchase, turned as though to catch himself, lashed out with his right foot. The toe was aimed with a precision that did credit to his long years of training, as though all of that training focused on this instant. Almost every muscle of his body cooperated in the placement of it, The tip struck the soft part of Zygo's abdomen just below the sternum, slammed upward with terrible force over the liver and through the diaphragm to crush the right ventricle of the man's heart. With one gurgling scream, the guard jerked backward across the seats. Paul, unable to use his hands, continued his tumble onto the sand, landing with a roll that took up the force and brought him back to his feet in one motion— He dove back into the cabin, found the knife and held it in his teeth while his mother sawed her bonds. She took the blade and freed his hands.
1: I could have handled him. He'd have had to cut my bindings. That was a foolish risk.
0: I saw the opening and used it. She heard the harsh control in his voice.
1: Yui's house sign is scrawled on the ceiling of this cabin.
0: He looked up, saw the curling symbol.
1: Get out and let us study this craft. There's a bundle under the pilot's seat. I felt it when we got in. Bomb? Doubt it. There's something peculiar here.
0: Paul leaped out to the sand and Jessica followed. She turned, reached under the seat for the strange bundle, seeing Zygo's feet close to her face, feeling dampness on the bundle as she removed it, realizing the dampness was the pilot's blood. Waste of moisture, she thought, knowing that this was Arakeen thinking. Paul stared around them, saw the rock scarp lifting out of the desert like a beach rising from the sea, wind-carved palisades beyond. He turned back as his mother lifted the bundle from the thopter, saw her stare across the dunes toward the shield wall. He looked to see what drew her attention, saw another thopter swooping toward them, realized they'd not have time to clear the bodies out of this thopter and escape.
1: Run, Paul, it's Harkonnen's! Arrakis teaches the attitude of the knife, chopping off what's incomplete, and saying now, it's complete because it's ended here. From Collected Sayings of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan.
0: A man in and uniform skidded to a stop at the end of the hall, stared in at Yui, taking in at a single glance Mapes's body, the sprawled form of the Duke, Yui, standing there. The man held a lays gun in his right hand. There was a casual air of brutality about him, a sense of toughness and poise that sent a shiver through Yui. Sardaka, Yui thought. A basha by the look of him. Probably one of the Emperor's own sent here to keep an eye on things. No matter what the uniform, there's no disguising them. You're Yui, the man said. He looked speculatively at the souk school ring on the doctor's hair, stared once at the diamond tattoo, and then met Yui's eyes. "'I am Yui,' the doctor said. "'You can relax, Yui,' the man said. "'When you dropped the house shields, we came right in. Everything's under control here. Is this the duke?' "'This is the duke.' "'Dead?' "'Merely unconscious. I suggest you tie him.' "'Did you do for these others?' He glanced back down the hall where Mapes's body lay. More's the pity, Yue muttered. Pity, the Sardukah sneered. He advanced, looked down at Leto. So that's the great red duke. If I had any doubts about what this man is, that would end them, Yue thought. Only the emperor calls the Atreides the red dukes. The Sardauka reached down, cut the Red Hawk insignia from Leto's uniform. Little souvenir, he said. Where's the ducal signet ring? He doesn't have it on him, Yui said. I can see that, the Sardauka snapped. Yui stiffened, swallowed. If they press me, bring in a truth truthsayer, they'll find out about the ring, about the thopter I prepared, all will fail. Sometimes the duke sent the ring with a messenger as surety that an order came directly from him, Yui said. Must be damned trusted messengers, the Sardukah muttered. Aren't you going to tie him, Yui ventured. How long will he be unconscious? Two hours or so. I wasn't as precise with his dosage as I was for the woman and boy. The Sardukah spurned the duke with his toe. This was nothing to fear even when awake. When will the woman and boy awaken? About ten minutes. So soon? I was told the baron would arrive immediately behind his men. So he will. You'll wait outside, Yui. He shot a hard glance at Yui. Now. Yui glanced at Leto. What about... He'll be delivered to the baron all properly trussed, like a roast for the oven. Again the Sarduco looked at the diamond tattoo on Yui's forehead. You're known. You'll be safe enough in the halls. We've no more time for chit-chat, traitor. I hear the others coming. Traitor, Yui thought. He lowered his gaze, pressed past the Sarduco, knowing this as a foretaste of how history would remember him. Yui, the traitor. He passed more bodies on his way to the front entrance and glanced at them, fearful that one might be Paul or Jessica. All were house troopers, or wore Harkonnen uniform. Harkonnen guards came alert, staring at him as he emerged from the front entrance into flame-lighted night. The palms along the road had been fired to illuminate the house. Black smoke from the flammables used to ignite the trees poured upward through orange flames. It's the traitor, someone said. The Baron will want to see you soon, another said. I must get to the Thopter, Ewy thought. I must put the Ducal Signet where Paul will find it. And fear struck him. If Idaho suspects me or grows impatient, if he doesn't wait and go exactly where I told him, Jessica and Paul will not be saved from the carnage. I'll be denied even the smallest relief from my act. The Harkonnen guard released his arm, said, Right over there, out of the way. Abruptly, Yui saw himself as cast away in this place of destruction. Spared nothing, given not the smallest pity. Idaho must not fail. Another guard bumped into him, barked, Stay out of the way, you. Even when they've profited by me, they despise me, Yui thought. He straightened himself as he was pushed aside, regained some of his dignity. Wait for the baron. A guard officer snarled. Yui nodded, walked with controlled casualness along the front of the house, turned the corner into shadows out of sight of the burning palms. Quickly, every step betraying his anxiety, Yui made for the rear yard beneath the conservatory where the thopter waited, the craft they had placed there to carry away Paul and his mother. A guard stood at the open rear door of the house, his attention focused on the lighted hall and men banging through there, searching from room to room. How confident they were! Huey hugged the shadows, worked his way around the thopter, eased open the door on the side away from the guard. He felt under the front seats for the kit he had hidden there, lifted a flap and slipped in the ducal signet. He felt the crinkling of the spice paper there, the note he had written... Pressed the ring into the paper. He removed his hand, resealed the pack. Softly, Yui closed the Thopter door, worked his way back to the corner of the house and around toward the flaming trees. Now it is done, he thought. Once more he emerged into the light of the blazing palms. He pulled his cloak around him, stared at the flames. Soon I will know. Soon I will see the Baron and I will know. And the Baron, he will encounter a small tooth.
1: There is a legend that the instant the Duke Leto Atreides died, a meteor streaked across the skies above his ancestral palace on Caledon. The Princess Irulan, Introduction to a Child's History of Muad'Dib.
0: The Baron Vladimir Harkonnen stood at a viewpoint of the grounded lighter he was using as a command post. Out the door he saw the flame-lighted Knight of Arikine. His attention focused on the distant shield wall where his secret weapon was doing its work. Explosive artillery. The guns nibbled at the caves where the Duke's fighting men had retreated for a last-ditch stand. Slowly measured bites of orange glare, showers of rock and dust in the brief illumination, and the duke's men were being sealed off to die by starvation, caught like animals in their burrows. The baron could feel the distant chomping. A drumbeat carried to him through the ship's metal. Brump, brump. Then, brump, brump. Who would think of reviving artillery in this day of shields? The thought was a chuckle in his mind. But it was predictable the Duke's men would run for those caves, and the Emperor will appreciate my cleverness in preserving the lives of our mutual force. He adjusted one of the little suspensers that guarded his fat body against the pull of gravity. A smile creased his mouth, pulled at the lines of his jowls. A pity to waste such fighting men as the Duke's, he thought. He smiled more broadly laughed at himself. "'Pity should be cruel,' he nodded. Failure was, by definition, expendable. The whole universe sat there, open to the man who could make the right decisions. The uncertain rabbits had to be exposed, made to run for their burrows. Else how could you control them and breed them?' He pictured his fighting men as bees routing the rabbits, and he thought— The day hums sweetly when you have enough bees working for you. A door opened behind him. The Baron studied the reflection in the night-blackened viewport before turning. Piter de Vries advanced into the chamber, followed by Amon Kudu, the captain of the Baron's personal guard. There was a motion of men just outside the door, the mutton faces of his guard, their expressions carefully sheep-like in his presence. The Baron turned. Piter touched finger to forelock in his mocking salute. Good news, my lord. The Sardaka have brought in the duke. Of course they have, the baron rumbled. He studied the somber mask of villainy on Piter's effeminate face, and the eyes, those shaded slits of bluest blue in blue. Soon I must remove him, the baron thought. He has almost outlasted his usefulness almost reached the point of positive danger to my person. First, though he must make the people of Arrakis hate him, then they will welcome my darling Fade Rautha as a savior. The Baron shifted his attention to the guard captain, Amon Kudu, scissors-line of jaw muscles, chin like a boot toe, a man to be trusted because the captain's vices were known. First, Where is the traitor who gave me the duke? The baron asked. I must give the traitor his reward. Piter turned on one toe, motioned to the guard outside. A bit of black movement there and Yui walked through. His motions were stiff and stringy. The mustache drooped beside his purple lips. Only the old eyes seemed alive. Yui came to a stop three paces into the room, obeying a motion from Piter and stood there staring across the open space at the baron. Ah, Dr. Yui. My lord hearken, You've given us the duke, I hear. My half of the bargain, my lord. The baron looked at Piter. Piter nodded. The baron looked back at Yui. The letter of the bargain, eh? And I, he spat the words out. What was I to do in return? You remember quite well, my lord Harkonnen. And Ewe allowed himself to think, now hearing the loud silence of clocks in his mind. He had seen the subtle betrayals in the baron's manner. Wanner was indeed dead, gone far beyond their reach. Otherwise there'd still be a hold on the weak doctor. The baron's manner showed there was no hold. It was ended. Do I... The baron asked. You promised to deliver my wana from her agony. The baron nodded. Oh, yes, now I remember, so I did. That was my promise. That was how we bent the imperial conditioning. You couldn't endure seeing your many Gesserit witch grovel in Piter's pain amplifiers. Well, the Baron Vladimir Harkonnen always keeps his promises. I told you I'd free her from the agony and permit you to join her. So be it. He waved a hand at Piter. Piter's blue eyes took a glazed look. His movement was cat-like in its sudden fluidity. The knife in his hand glistened like a claw as it flashed into Yui's back. The old man stiffened never taking his attention from the baron. So join her, the baron spat. Ewe stood swaying. His lips moved with careful precision, and his voice came in oddly measured cadence. You think you defeated me? You think I did not know what I bought for my want he toppled. No bending or softening. It was like a tree falling. So join her, the Baron repeated, but his words were like a weak echo. Yui had filled him with a sense of foreboding. He whipped his attention to Piter, watched the man wipe the blade on a scrap of cloth, watched the creamy look of satisfaction in the blue eyes. So that's how he kills by his own hand, the Baron thought. It's well to know. He did give us the duke, the baron asked. Of a certainty, my lord, Piter said. Then get him in here. Piter glanced at the guard captain who whirled to obey. The baron looked down at Yui. From the way the man had fallen, you could suspect oak in him instead of bones. I never could bring myself to trust a traitor, the baron said. Not even a traitor I created. He glanced at the night-shrouded viewport. That black bag of stillness out there was his, the Baron knew. There was no more crump of artillery against the shield wall caves. The burrow traps were sealed off. Quite suddenly, the Baron's mind could conceive of nothing more beautiful than that utter emptiness of black. Unless it were white on the black plated white on the black, porcelain white. But there was still the feeling of doubt. What had the old fool of a doctor meant? Of course, he'd probably know what would happen to him in the end, but that bit about thinking he'd been defeated. You think you defeated me. What had he meant? The Duke Leto Atreides came through the door. His arms were bound in chains, the eagle face streaked with dirt. His uniform was torn where someone had ripped off his insignia. There were tatters at his waist where the shield belt had been removed without first freeing the uniform ties. The Duke's eyes held a glazed, insane look. Well, the Baron said. He hesitated, drawing in a deep breath. He knew he had spoken too loudly. This moment, long envisioned, had lost some of its savour. Damn that cursed doctor through all eternity i believe the good duke is drugged piter said that's how you caught him for us piter turned to the duke aren't you drugged my dear duke the voice was far away Leto could feel the chains, the ache of muscles, his cracked lips, his burning cheeks, the dry taste of thirst whispering its grit in his mouth. But sounds were dull, hidden by a cottony blanket, and he saw only dim shapes through the blanket. "'What of the woman and the boy, Piter?' the baron asked. "'Any word yet?' Piter's tongue darted over his lips. "'You've heard something,' the baron snapped. "'What?' Piter glanced at the guard captain, back to the baron. The men who were sent to do the job, my lord, they've, uh, been, uh, found. Well, they report everything satisfactory? They're dead, my lord. Of course they are. What I want to know is... They were dead when found, my lord. The baron's face went livid. And the woman and boy... No sign, my lord, but there was a worm. It came while the scene was being investigated. Perhaps it's as we wished. An accident, possibly. We do not deal in possibilities, Piter. What of the missing thopter? Does that suggest anything to my mentat? One of the duke's men obviously escaped in it, my lord. Killed our pilot and escaped. Which of the duke's men? It was a clean, silent killing, my lord. Howard, perhaps, or that Halleck one. Possibly Idaho, or any top, lieutenant. Possibilities, the baron muttered. He glanced at the swaying, drugged figure of the duke. The situation is in hand, my lord, Piter said. No, it isn't. Where is that stupid planetologist? Where is this mankind's? We've word where to find him, and he's been sent for, my lord. I don't like the way the emperor's servant is helping us, the baron muttered. They were words through a cottony blanket, but some of them burned in Leto's mind. Woman and boy, no sign. Paul and Jessica had escaped, and the fate of Howard, Halleck, and Idaho remained an unknown. There was still hope. Where is the ducal signet ring? The baron demanded. His finger is bare. The Sarduker say it was not on him when he was taken, my lord, the guard captain said. You killed the doctor too soon, the baron said. That was a mistake. You should have warned me, Piter. You moved too precipitately for the good of our enterprise. He scowled. Possibilities. The thought hung like a sine wave in Leto's mind. Paul and Jessica have escaped. And there was something else in his memory. A bargain. He could almost remember it. The tooth. He remembered part of it now. A pill of poison gas shaped into a false tooth. Someone had told him to remember the tooth. The tooth was in his mouth. He could feel its shape with his tongue. All he had to do was bite sharply on it. Not yet. The someone had told him to wait until he was near the baron. Who had told him? He couldn't remember. How long will he remain drugged like this? The baron asked. Perhaps another hour, my lord. Perhaps, the baron muttered. Again he turned to the night-blackened window. I am hungry. That's the baron. That fuzzy gray shape there, Leto thought. The shape danced back and forth, swaying with the movement of the room, and the room expanded and contracted. It grew brighter and darker. It folded into blackness and faded. Time became a sequence of layers for the duke. He drifted up through them. I must wait. There was a table. Loto saw the table quite clearly, and a gross Fat man on the other side of the table, the remains of a meal in front of him. Leto felt himself sitting in a chair across from the fat man, felt the chains, the straps that held his tingling body in the chair. He was aware there had been a passage of time, but its length escaped him. I believe he's coming around, Baron. A silky voice, that one. That was Piter. So I see, Piter, a rumbling basso, the baron. Leto sensed increasing definition in his surroundings. The chair beneath him took on firmness. The bindings were sharper. And he saw the baron clearly now. Leto watched the movements of the man's hands, compulsive touchings, the edge of a plate, the handle of a spoon, a finger tracing the fold of a jowl. Leto watched the moving hand, fascinated by it. "'You can hear me, Duke Leto,' the baron said. "'I know you can hear me. We want to know from you where to find your concubine and the child you sired on her.' No sign escaped Leto, but the words were a wash of calmness through him. "'It's true, then. They don't have Paul and Jessica.' This is not a child's game we play, the baron rumbled. You must know that. He leaned toward Leto, studying the face. It pained the baron that this could not be handled privately just between the two of them. To have others see royalty in such straits, it set a bad precedent. Leto could feel strength returning. And now the memory of the false tooth stood out in his mind like a steeple in a flat landscape the nerve-shaped capsule within that tooth, the poison gas. He remembered who had put the deadly weapon in his mouth. Yui. Drug-fogged memory of seeing a limp corpse dragged past him in this room, hung like a vapor in Leto's mind. He knew it had been Yui. Do you hear that noise, Duke Leto? the Baron asked. Leto grew conscious of a frog sound. "'the bird mewling of someone's agony. "'We caught one of your men disguised as a Fremen,' the Baron said. "'We penetrated the disguise quite easily. "'The eyes, you know. "'He insists he was sent among the Fremen to spy on them. "'I've lived for a time on this planet, share cousin. "'One does not spy on those ragged scum of the desert. "'Tell me, did you buy their help?' Did you send your woman and son to them? Leto felt fear tighten his chest. If you sent them to the Desert Fold, the search won't stop until they're found. Come, come, the Baron said. We don't have much time and pain is quick. Please don't bring it to this, my dear Duke. The Baron looked up at Piter, who stood at Leto's shoulder. Piter doesn't have all his tools here, but I'm sure he could improvise. Improvisation is sometimes the best, Baron. That silky, insinuating voice, Leto heard it at his ear. You had an emergency plan, the Baron said. Where have your woman and the boy been sent? He looked at Leto's hand. Your ring is missing. Does the boy have it? The Baron looked up, stared into Leto's eyes. You don't answer, he said. Will you force me to do a thing I do not want to do? Piter will use simple, direct methods. I agree they're sometimes the best, but it's not good that you should be subjected to such things. Hot tallow on the back, perhaps. Or on the eyelids, Piter said. Perhaps on other portions of the body. It's especially effective when the subject doesn't know where the tallow will fall next. It's a good method, and there's a sort of beauty in the pattern of pus-white blisters on naked skin, eh, Baron? Exquisite, the Baron said, and his voice sounded sour. Those touching fingers. Leto watched the fat hands, the glittering jewels on baby fat hands, their compulsive wandering The sounds of agony coming through the door behind him gnawed at the duke's nerves. Who is it they caught, he wondered. Could it have been Idaho? Believe me, Cher cousin, the baron said. I do not want it to come to this. You think of nerve couriers racing to summon help that cannot come, Piter said. There's an artistry in this, you know. You're a superb artist, the baron growled. Now... Have the decency to be silent. Leto suddenly recalled a thing Gurney Halleck had said once, seeing a picture of the baron. And I stood upon the sand of the sea and saw a beast rise up out of the sea and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. We waste time, baron, Piter said. Perhaps, the baron nodded. You know, my dear Leto, You'll tell us in the end where they are. There's a level of pain that'll buy you. He is most likely correct, Leto thought. Were it not for the tooth and the fact that I truly don't know where they are. The Baron picked up a sliver of meat, pressed the morsel into his mouth, chewed slowly, swallowed. We must try a new tack, he thought. Observe this prize person who denies he's for hire, the Baron said. Observe him, Piter. And the Baron thought, Yes, see him there, this man who believes he cannot be bought. See him detained there by a million shares of himself sold in dribbles every second of his life. If you took him up now and shook him, he'd rattle inside, emptied, sold out. What difference how he dies now? The frog sounds in the background stopped. The baron saw Kudu, the guard captain, appear in the doorway across the room. Shake his head. The captive hadn't produced the needed information. Another failure. Time to quit stalling with this fool duke. This stupid, soft fool who didn't realize how much hell there was so near him. Only a nerve's thickness away. This thought calmed the baron overcoming his reluctance to have a royal person subject to pain. He saw himself suddenly as a surgeon, exercising endless supple scissor dissections, cutting away the masks from fools, exposing the hell beneath. Rabbits, all of them. And how they cowered when they saw the carnivore. Leto stared across the table, wondering why he waited. The tooth would end it all quickly. Still, it had been good, much of this life. He found himself remembering an antenna kite up, dangling in the shell-blue sky of Caladan, and Paul laughing with joy at the sight of it. And he remembered sunrise here on Arrakis, colored strata of the shield wall mellowed by dust haze. Too bad, the Baron muttered. He pushed himself back from the table, stood up lightly in his suspensors, and hesitated, seeing a change come over the duke. He saw the man draw in a deep breath, the jawline stiffen, the ripple of a muscle there as the duke clamped his mouth shut. "'How he fears me!' the baron thought. Shocked by fear that the baron might escape, Leto bit sharply on the capsule-tooth, felt it break. He opened his mouth, expelled the biting vapor he could taste as it formed on his tongue. The Baron grew smaller, a figure seen in a tightening tunnel. Leto heard a gasp beside his ear. The Silky voiced one, Piter, it got him too. Piter! What's wrong? The rumbling voice was far away. Leto sensed memories rolling in his mind, the old toothless mutterings of hags. The room, the table, the baron, a pair of terrified eyes, blue within blue, the eyes, all compressed around him in ruined symmetry. There was a man with a boot, toe, chin, a toy man, falling. The toy man had a broken nose, slanted to the left, an offbeat metronome caught forever at the start of an upward stroke. Leto heard the crash of crockery, so distant, a roaring in his ears, His mind was a bin without end, catching everything, everything that had ever been, every shout, every whisper, every silence. One thought remained to him. Later saw it in formless light on rays of black, the day the flesh shapes and the flesh the day shapes. The thought struck him with a sense of fullness he knew he could never explain. Silence. The Baron stood with his back against his private door, his own bolt hole behind the table. He had slammed it on a room full of dead men. His senses took in guards swarming around him. Did I breathe it? he asked himself. Whatever it was in there, did it get me too? Sounds returned to him and reason. He heard someone shouting orders, gas masks, keep a door closed, get blowers going. The others fell quickly, he thought. I'm still standing. I'm still breathing. Merciless hell, that was close. He could analyze it now. His shield had been activated, set low but still enough to slow molecular interchange across the field barrier and he had been pushing himself away from the table, that and Piter's shocked gasp which had brought the guard captain darting forward into his own doom. Chance, and the warning in a dying man's gasp, these had saved him. The baron felt no gratitude to Piter. The fool had got himself killed, and that stupid guard captain, he'd said he scoped everyone before bringing them into the baron's presence. How had it been possible for the duke No warning, not even from the poison snooper over the table until it was too late. How? Well, no matter now, the Baron thought, his mind firming. The next guard captain will begin by finding answers to these questions. He grew aware of more activity down the hall, around the corner at the other door to that room of death. The Baron pushed himself away from his own door, studied the lackeys around him, They stood there staring, silent, waiting for the baron's reaction. Would the baron be angry? And the baron realized only a few seconds had passed since his flight from that terrible room. Some of the guards had weapons leveled at the door. Some were directing their ferocity toward the empty hall that stretched away toward the noises around the corner to their right. A man came striding around that corner, gas mask dangling by its straps at his neck, his eyes intent on the overhead poison snoopers that lined this corridor. He was yellow-haired, flat of face, with green eyes. Crisp lines radiated from his thick, lipped mouth. He looked like some water creature, misplaced among those who walked the land. The baron stared at the approaching man, recalling the name, Nefud. Yakin Nefud Guard corporal Nefud was addicted to Semuta, a drug music combination that played itself in the deepest consciousness. A useful item of information, that. The man stopped in front of the baron, saluted. Corridors clear, my lord. I was outside watching and saw that it must be poison gas. Ventilators in your room were pulling air in from these corridors. He glanced up at the snooper over the baron's head. None of the stuff escaped we have the room cleaned out now. What are your orders?'' The baron recognized the man's voice, the one who'd been shouting orders. ''Efficient, this corporal,'' he thought. ''They're all dead in there?'' the baron asked. ''Yes, my lord?'' ''Well, we must adjust,'' the baron thought. First, he said. ''Let me congratulate you, Nefud. You're the new captain of my guard.'' and I hope you'll take to heart the lesson to be learned from the fate of your predecessor. The Baron watched the awareness grow in his newly promoted guardsman. Nefud knew he'd never again be without his Samuta. Nefud nodded. My Lord knows I'll devote myself entirely to his safety. Yes, well to business. I suspect the Duke had something in his mouth. You will find out what that something was, how it was used, who helped him put it there. You'll take every precaution." He broke off, his chain of thought shattered by a disturbance in the corridor behind him. Guards at the door to the lift from the lower levels of the frigate trying to hold back a tall Colonel Bashar who had just emerged from the lift. The Baron couldn't place the Colonel Bashar's face. Thin with mouth like a slash in leather, twin ink spots for eyes. "'Get your hands off me, you pack of carrion eaters!' The man roared, and he dashed the guards aside. Ah, one of the Sardica, the Baron thought. The Colonel Abashar came striding toward the Baron, whose eyes went to slits of apprehension. The Sardica officers filled him with unease. They all seemed to look like relatives of the Duke, the late Duke, and their manners with the Baron. The Colonel Abashar planted himself half a pace in front of the Baron, hands on hips, The guard hovered behind him in twitching uncertainty. The baron noted the absence of salute, the disdain in the Sardaka's manner, and his unease grew. There was only the one legion of them, locally, ten brigades, reinforcing the Harkonnen legions, but the baron did not fool himself. That one legion was perfectly capable of turning on the Harkonnens and overcoming them. "'Tell your men they are not to prevent me from seeing you, baron.' the Sardukah growled. My men brought you the Atreides Duke before I could discuss his fate with you. We will discuss it now. I must not lose face before my men, the Baron thought. So? It was a coldly controlled word and the Baron felt proud of it. My Emperor has charged me to make certain his royal cousin dies cleanly, without agony, the Colonel Bashar said. Such were the imperial orders to me, the baron lied. Did you think I'd disobey? I'm to report to my emperor what I see with my own eyes, the saduka said. The duke's already dead, the baron snapped, and he waved a hand to dismiss the fellow. The colonel Bashar remained planted facing the baron. Not by flicker of eye or muscle did he acknowledge he had been dismissed. How? he growled. Really, the baron thought, this is too much. By his own hand, if you must know, the baron said. He took poison. I will see the body now, the colonel Bashar said. The baron raised his gaze to the ceiling in feigned exasperation while his thoughts raced. Damnation, this sharp-eyed sadhaka will see the room before a thing's been changed. Now, the sadhaka growled, I'll see it with my own eyes. There was no preventing it, the Baron realized. The Sardukah would see all. He'd know the Duke had killed Harkon and men, that the Baron most likely had escaped by a narrow margin. There was the evidence of the dinner remnants on the table and the dead Duke across from it with destruction around him. No preventing it at all. I'll not be put off, the Colonel Bashar snarled. You're not being put off the baron said, and he stared into the Sardukah's obsidian eyes. I hide nothing from my emperor. He nodded to Nefud. The Colonel Bashar is to see everything at once. Take him in by the door where you stood, Nefud. This way, sir, Nefud said. Slowly, insolently, the Sardukah moved around the baron, shouldered away through the guardsmen. Insufferable, the baron thought. Now the Emperor will know how I slipped up. He'll recognize it as a sign of weakness. And it was agonizing to realize that the Emperor and his Sardukah were alike in their disdain for weakness. The Baron chewed at his lower lip, consoling himself that the Emperor at least had not learned of the Atreides' raid on Gedi Prime, the destruction of the Harkonnen spice stores there. Damn that slippery duke! The baron watched the retreating backs, the arrogant Sadaka, and the stocky, efficient Nefud. We must adjust, the baron thought. I'll have to put Raban over this damnable planet once more. Without restraint, I must spread my own and blood to put Arrakis into a proper condition for accepting Fade Rautha. Damn that Pider! He will get himself killed before I was through with him. The baron sighed and I must send at once to Tleilax for a new Mentat. They undoubtedly have the new one ready for me by now. One of the guardsmen beside him coughed. The baron turned toward the man. I'm hungry. Yes, my lord. And I wish to be diverted while you're clearing out that room and studying its secrets for me. The baron rumbled. The guardsman lowered his eyes. What diversion does my lord wish? "'I'll be in my sleeping chambers,' the baron said. "'Bring me that young fellow we bought on Gamont, "'the one with the lovely eyes. "'Drag him well. "'I don't feel like wrestling.' "'Yes, my lord?' "'The baron turned away, "'began moving with his bouncing, "'suspenser-boyed pace toward his chambers. "'Yes,' he thought, "'the one with the lovely eyes.' The one who looks so much like the young Paul Atreides.
1: O seas of Caledon, O people of Duke Leto, citadel of Leto fallen, fallen forever. From Songs of Muad'Dib by the Princess Irulan.
0: Paul felt that all his past, every experience before this night, had become sand, curling in an hourglass. He sat near his mother, hugging his knees within a small fabric and plastic hutment, a still tent that had come, like the fremen clothing they now wore, from the pack left in the thopter. There was no doubt in Paul's mind who had put the fremkit there, who had directed the course of the thopter carrying them captive. Yui, The traitor doctor had sent them directly into the hands of Duncan Idaho. Paul stared out the transparent end of the still tent at the moon-shadowed rocks that ringed this place where Idaho had hidden them. Hidden like a child when I'm now the Duke, Paul thought. He felt the thought gall him, but he could not deny the wisdom in what they did. Something had happened to his awareness this night. He saw with sharpened clarity every circumstance and occurrence around him. He felt unable to stop the inflow of data or the cold precision with which each new item was added to his knowledge, and the computation was centered in his awareness. It was mentat power and more. Paul thought back to the moment of impotent rage as the strange thopter dived out of the night onto them, swooping like a giant hawk above the desert with wind screaming through its wings. The thing in Paul's mind had happened then. The thopter had skidded and slewed across a sand ridge toward the running figures, his mother and himself. Paul remembered how the smell of burned sulfur from abrasion of thopter skids against sand had drifted across them. His mother, he knew, had turned, expected to meet a laze gun in the hands of Harkonnen mercenaries, and had recognized Duncan Idaho leaning out the thopter's open door, shouting, Hurry! There's worm sign south of you! but Paul had known as he turned who piloted the Thopter. An accumulation of minutiae in the way it was flown, the dash of the landing, clues so small, even his mother hadn't detected them, had told Paul precisely who sat at those controls. Across the still tent from Paul, Jessica stirred, said, There can be only one explanation. The Harkonnens held you as wife. He hated the Harkonnens. I cannot be wrong about that. You read his note. But why has he saved us from the carnage? She is only now seeing it, and that poorly, Paul thought. The thought was a shock. He had known this fact as a by-the-way thing while reading the note that had accompanied the ducal signet in the pack. Do not try to forgive me, Hughie had written. I do not want your forgiveness. I already have enough burdens." What I have done was done without malice or hope of another's understanding. It is my own Tahadi al-Burhan, my ultimate test. I give you the Atreides' ducal signet as token that I write truly. By the time you read this, Duke later will be dead. Take consolation from my assurance that he did not die alone, that one we hate above all others died with him. It had not been addressed or signed, but there had been no mistaking the familiar scrawl. Ewees. Remembering the letter, Paul re-examined the distress of that moment, a thing sharp and strange that seemed to happen outside his new mental alertness. He had read that his father was dead, known the truth of the words, but had felt them as no more than another datum to be entered in his mind and used. I loved my father. Paul thought, and knew this for truth. I should mourn him. I should feel something. But he felt nothing except, here's an important fact. It was one with all the other facts. All the while his mind was adding sense impressions, extrapolating computing. Halleck's words came back to Paul. Mood's a thing for cattle or for making love, you fight when a necessity arises, no matter your mood. Perhaps that's it, Paul thought. I'll mourn my father later, when there's time. But he felt no let-up in the cold precision of his being. He sensed that his new awareness was only a beginning, that it was growing. The sense of terrible purpose he'd first experienced in his ordeal with the Reverend Mother Gaius Helen Mohiam pervaded him. His right hand, the hand of remembered pain, tingled and throbbed. Is this what it is to be the Kwisatz Haderach? He wondered. For a while I thought Howard had failed us again, Jessica said. I thought perhaps Yui wasn't a souk doctor. He was everything we thought him, and more, Paul said. And he thought, why is she so slow seeing these things? He said, If Idaho doesn't get through to Kynes, we'll be... He's not our only hope, she said. Such was not my suggestion, he said. She heard the steel in his voice, the sense of command, and stared across the gray darkness of the still tent at him. Paul was a silhouette against moon-frosted rocks, seen through the tent's transparent end. Others among your father's men will have escaped, she said. We must regather them, find... We will depend upon ourselves, he said. Our immediate concern is our family atomics. We must get them before the Harkonnens can search them out. Not likely they'll be found, she said. The way they were hidden. It must not be left to chance. And she thought, blackmail with a family atomics as a threat to the planet and its spice. That's what he has in mind. But all he can hope for then is escape into renegade anonymity. His mother's words had provoked another train of thought in Paul, a duke's concern for all the people they'd lost this night. People are the true strength of a great house, Paul thought. And he remembered Howard's words. Parting with people is a sadness. A place is only a place. They're using Sardukah, Jessica said. We must wait until the Sardukah have been withdrawn. They think us caught between the desert and the Sardukah, Paul said. They intend that there be no Atreides survivors. Total extermination. Do not count on any of our people escaping. They cannot go on indefinitely risking exposure of the Emperor's part in this. Can't they? Some of our people are bound to escape. Are they? Jessica turned away, frightened of the bitter strength in her son's voice, hearing the precise assessment of chances. She sensed that his mind had leaped ahead of her, that it now saw more in some respects than she did. She had helped train the intelligence which did this, but now she found herself fearful of it. Her thoughts turned, seeking toward the lost sanctuary of her duke, and tears burned her eyes. This is the way it had to be later, she thought. A time of love and a time of grief. She rested her hand on her abdomen, awareness focused on the embryo there. I have, the Atreides daughter, I was ordered to produce. But the Reverend Mother was wrong. A daughter wouldn't have saved my Leto. This child is only life reaching for the future in the midst of death. I conceived out of instinct and not out of obedience. Try the Communinet receiver again, Paul said. The mind goes on working no matter how we try to hold it back, she thought. Jessica found the tiny receiver Idaho had left for them, flipped its switch. A green light glowed on the instrument's face. Tinny screeching came from its speaker. She reduced the volume, hunted across the bands. A voice speaking Atreides' battle language came into the tent. Back and regroup at the ridge. Fedor reports no survivors in Carthage, and the guild bank has been sacked. Carthag, Jessica thought. That was a Harkonnen hotbed. There's Sardica," the voice said. Watch out for Sardica in Atreides' uniforms. There— A roaring filled the speaker. Then silence. Try the other bands, Paul said. Do you realize what that means? Jessica asked. I expected it. They want the guild to blame us for destruction of their bank. With the guild against us, we are trapped on Arrakis. Try the other bands. She weighed his words. I expected it. What had happened to him? Slowly, Jessica returned to the instrument. As she moved the band slide, they caught glimpses of violence in the few voices calling out in Atreides battle language, Fall back! Try to regroup it! Trapped in a cave! And there was no mistaking the victorious exultation in the Harkonnen gibberish that poured from the other bands. Sharp commands. Battle reports. There wasn't enough of it for Jessica to register and break the language, but the tone was obvious. Harkonnen victory. Paul shook the pack beside him, hearing the two liturgons of water gurgle there. He took a deep breath, looked up through the transparent end of the tent at the rocky escarpment outlined against the stars. His left hand felt the sphincter seal of the tent's entrance. It'll be dawn soon, he said. We can wait through the day for Idaho, but not through another night. In the desert you must travel by night and rest in shade through the day. Remembered lore insinuated itself into Jessica's mind. Without a stillsuit, a man sitting in shade on the desert needs five liters of water a day to maintain body weight. She felt the slick soft skin of the stillsuit against her body, thinking how their lives depended on these garments. If we leave here, Idaho can't find us, she said. There are ways to make any man talk, he said. If Idaho hasn't returned by dawn, we must consider the possibility he has been captured. How long do you think he could hold out? The question required no answer, and she sat in silence. Paul lifted the seal on the pack, pulled out a tiny micro-manual with glow-tab and magnifier. Green and orange letters leaped up at him from the pages. Leta John's still tent... Energy caps, recaths, sand snork, binoculars, stillsuit rep kit, baradai pistol, sink chart, filt plugs, compass maker hooks, thumpers, frem kit, fire pillar. So many things for survival on the desert. Presently, he put the manual aside on the tent floor. Where can we possibly go? Jessica asked. My father spoke of desert power, Paul said. The Harkonnens cannot rule this planet without it. They've never ruled this planet, nor shall they? Not even with ten thousand legions of Sarduka. Paul, you can't think that we've all the evidence in our hands, he said. Right here in this tent. The tent itself, this pack and its contents, these still suits. We know the guild wants a prohibitive price for weather satellites. We know that what have weather satellites got to do with it? she asked. They couldn't possibly She broke off. Paul sensed the hyper-alertness of his mind reading her reactions, computing on minutiae. You see it now, he said. Satellites watch the terrain below. There are things in the deep desert that will not bear frequent inspection. You're suggesting the guild itself controls this planet? She was so slow. No, he said. The Fremen, they're paying the guild for privacy. Paying in a coin that's freely available to anyone with desert power. Spice. This is more than a second approximation answer. It's the straight line computation. Depend on it. Paul, Jessica said. You're not a Mentat yet. You can't know for sure how... I'll never be a Mentat, he said. I'm something else. A freak. Paul, how can you say such... Leave me alone. He turned away from her looking out into the night. Why can't I mourn, he wondered. He felt that every fiber of his being craved this release, but it would be denied him forever. Jessica had never heard such distress in her son's voice. She wanted to reach out to him, hold him, comfort him, help him. But she sensed there was nothing she could do. He had to solve this problem by himself. The glowing tab of the fremkit manual between them on the tent floor caught her eye. She lifted it, glanced at the flyleaf, reading, Manual of the Friendly Desert, the place full of life. Here are the Ayat and Burhan of life. Believe and Alat shall never burn you. It reads like the Ajar book, she thought, recalling her studies of the Great Secrets. Has a manipulator of religions been on Arrakis? Paul lifted the paracampus from the pack, returned it, said, Think of all these special application Fremen machines. They show unrivaled sophistication. Admit it. The culture that made these things betrays depths no one suspected. Hesitating? Still worried by the harshness in his voice, Jessica returned to the book, studied an illustrated constellation from the Arakeen sky. Dib, the mouse, and noted that the tail pointed north. Paul stared into the tense darkness at the dimly discerned movements of his mother, revealed by the manual glow-tap. Now is the time to carry out my father's wish, he thought. I must give her his message now while she has time for grief. Grief would inconvenience us later, and he found himself shocked by precise logic. Mother, he said, yes. She heard the change in his voice, felt coldness in her entrails at the sound. Never had she heard such harsh control. My father is dead, he said. She searched within herself for the coupling of fact and fact and fact the Bene Gesserit way of assessing data, and it came to her. The sensation of terrifying loss. Jessica nodded, unable to speak. My father charged me once, Paul said, to give you a message if anything happened to him. He feared you might believe he distrusted you. That useless suspicion, she thought. He wanted you to know he never suspected you, Paul said, and explained the deception, adding... He wanted you to know he always trusted you completely, always loved you and cherished you. He said he would sooner have mistrusted himself, and he had but one regret, that he never made you his duchess. She brushed the tears coursing down her cheeks, thought, what a stupid waste of the body's water. But she knew this thought for what it was, the attempt to retreat from grief into anger. Leto, my Leto, she thought. What terrible things we do to those we love. With a violent motion, she extinguished the little manual's glow tab. Sobs shook her. Paul heard his mother's grief and felt the emptiness within himself. I have no grief, he thought. Why? Why? He felt the inability to grieve as a terrible flaw. A time to get and time to lose. "'Jessica thought, quoting to herself from the O.C. Bible. "'A time to keep and a time to cast away. "'A time for love and a time to hate. "'A time of war and a time of peace.' "'Paul's mind had gone on in its chilling precision. "'He saw the avenues ahead of them on this hostile planet.' Without even the safety valve of dreaming, he focused his prescient awareness, seeing it as a computation of most probable futures, but with something more, an edge of mystery, as though his mind dipped into some timeless stratum and sampled the winds of the future. Abruptly, as though he had found a necessary key, Paul's mind climbed another notch in awareness. He felt himself clinging to this new level, clutching at a precarious hold and peering about. It was as though he existed within a globe with avenues radiating away in all directions, yet this only approximated the sensation. He remembered once seeing a gauze kerchief blowing in the wind, and now he sensed the future as though it twisted across some surface as undulant and impermanent as that of the wind-blown kerchief. He saw people. He felt the heat and cold of uncounted probabilities. He knew names and places, experienced emotions without number, reviewed data of innumerable unexplored crannies. There was time to probe and test and taste, but no time to shape. The thing was a spectrum of possibilities from the most remote past to the most remote future from the most probable to the most improbable. He saw his own death in countless ways. He saw new planets, new cultures, people. People. He saw them in such swarms they could not be listed, yet his mind catalogued them. Even the guildsmen. And he thought, the guild. There'd be a way for us, my strangeness accepted as a familiar thing of high value, always with an assured supply of the now necessary spice. But the idea of living out his life in the mind-groping ahead through possible futures that guided hurtling spaceships appalled him. It was a way, though, and in meeting the possible future that contained men, he recognized his own strangeness. I have another kind of sight, I see another kind of terrain, the available paths. The awareness conveyed both reassurance and alarm, so many places on that other kind of terrain dipped or turned out of his sight. As swiftly as it had come, the sensation slipped away from him, and he realized the entire experience had taken the space of a heartbeat. Yet his own personal awareness had been turned over, illuminated in a terrifying way. He stared around him. Night still covered the still tent within its rock-enclosed hideaway. His mother's grief could still be heard. His own lack of grief could still be felt, that hollow place somewhere separated from his mind, which went on in its steady pace, dealing with data, evaluating, computing, submitting answers in something like the Mentat way. And now he saw that he had a wealth of data few such minds ever before had encompassed. But this made the empty place within him no easier to bear. He felt that something must shatter, It was as though a clockwork control for a bomb had been set to ticking within him. It went on about its business no matter what he wanted. It recorded minuscule shadings of difference around him, a slight change in moisture, a fractional fall in temperature, the progress of an insect across their still-tent roof, the solemn approach of dawn in the star-lighted patch of sky he could see out the tent's transparent end. The emptiness was unbearable. Knowing how the clockwork had been set in motion made no difference. He could look to his own past and see the start of it, the training, the sharpening of talents, the refined pressures of sophisticated disciplines, even exposure to the O.C. Bible at a critical moment, and, lastly, the heavy intake of spice. And he could look ahead, the most terrifying direction, to see where it all pointed— I'm a monster, he thought. A freak. No, he said. Then, no, no, no! He found that he was pounding the tent floor with his fists. The implacable part of him recorded this as an interesting emotional datum and fed it into computation. Paul! His mother was beside him, holding his hands, her face a grey blob, peering at him. Paul, what's wrong? You, he said, I'm here, Paul, she said. It's all right. What have you done to me, he demanded. In a burst of clarity, she sensed some of the roots in the question, said, I gave birth to you. It was, from instinct as much as her own subtle knowledge, the precisely correct answer to calm him. He felt her hands holding him, focused on the dim outline of her face. Certain gene traces in her facial structure were noted in the new way by his on-flowing mind. The clues added to other data, and a final summation answer put forward. Let go of me, he said. She heard the iron in his voice, obeyed. Do you want to tell me what's wrong, Paul? Did you know what you were doing when you trained me? He asked. There's no more childhood in his voice, she thought. And she said, I hoped the thing any parent hopes, that you'd be superior, different. Different? She heard the bitterness in his tone. Said, Paul, I... You didn't want a son, he said. You wanted a Kwisatz Haderach. You wanted a male Bene Gesserit. She recoiled from his bitterness. But Paul, did you ever consult my father in this? She spoke gently out of the freshness of her grief. Whatever you are, Paul, The heredity is as much your father as me. But not the training, he said. Not the things that awakened the sleeper. Sleeper? It's here. He put a hand to his head and then to his breast. In me. It goes on and on and on and on and Paul. She had heard the hysteria edging his voice. Listen to me, he said. "'You wanted the Reverend Mother to hear about my dreams. "'You listen in her place now. "'I've just had a waking dream. "'Do you know why?' "'You must calm yourself,' she said. "'If there's—' "'The spice,' he said. "'It's in everything here. "'The air, the soil, the food. "'The geriatric spice. "'It's like the truth-sayer drug. "'It's a poison.' "'She stiffened. "'His voice lowered, and he repeated, "'A poison.' So subtle, so insidious, so irreversible, it won't even kill you unless you stop taking it. We can't leave Arrakis unless we take part of Arrakis with us. The terrifying presence of his voice brooked no dispute. You and the spice, Paul said. The spice Changes anyone who gets this much of it, but thanks to you, I could bring the change to consciousness. I don't get to leave it in the unconscious where its disturbance can be blanked out. I can see it. Paul, you, I see it, he repeated. She heard madness in his voice, didn't know what to do. But he spoke again, and she heard the iron control return to him. We're trapped here. We're trapped here, she agreed and she accepted the truth of his words. No pressure of the Bene Gesserit, no trickery or artifice could pry them completely free from Arrakis. The spice was addictive. Her body had known the fact long before her mind awakened to it. So here we live out our lives, she thought, on this hell planet. The place is prepared for us if we can evade the Harkonnens. And there's no doubt of my course, a brood mare preserving an important bloodline for the Bene Gesserit plan.